Up next, we'll be talking about one of the giants of the faith from the last century who left an incredible impression on the church and on my life as well. Uh, stay tuned. everyone. Thanks for joining us on another episode of The Catholic Gentleman. We are your hosts, Sam Guzman and John Heinen. Really blessed that you have decided to join us today. Hope you get a lot out of this episode. Um, excited to be joined by a friend of mine and uh, expert in many things, but one that we're going to be talking about today. But before we get there, if this is your first time jumping into The Catholic Gentleman, please click that subscribe button wherever you're at. If you're on Spotify or Apple Podcasts and you've listened to us multiple times, we'd love it if you gave us a review or just kick that four or five stars that helps reach more men, um, moves the algorithm in the uh, benefit of uh, the faith, obviously, right? We want to get uh, more Catholic listeners. We want to get more men listening and thinking deeply about their faith and growing in that. One exciting piece of business just to pass along to you, Sam and I are about to launch our Catholic Gentleman Plus, our membership program. We have spent uh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours on it, actually many years thinking through it, and we finally got uh, it ready to go. And this program is going to be to help uh, guide men both in masculinity and in holiness uh, based on three pillars and categories uh, that we need to be always working on throughout our lives as men. And we're super excited to be uh, launching that on June 1st. So diving into the episode with the friend of mine, Roland Miliari. So he is a doctor, Dr. Roland Miliari. He is a native Houstonian. That's where I met him. He currently serves as the vice president of curriculum and the director of clergy initiatives for the St. John Paul II Foundation there in Houston. He served as a member of the theology department at St. John the 23rd College Preparatory School for over 15 years. And among his many degrees, he, own, he holds a licentiate or an STL. You need one of those to teach at seminary. He also owns a doctorate in sacred theology and dogmatic theology. And he serves as the adjunct professor of, hold with me, theology for permanent deacon candidates, seminarians, undergraduate and graduates at the University of St. Thomas, St. Mary's Seminary, the Diocese of Fort Worth, and the University of Dallas. He has written tons of articles, and he's published one incredible book, A Living Sacrifice, Liturgy and Eschatology in Joseph Ratzinger. And uh, he's living in Texas. He enjoys the gift of life and love with his beautiful wife, who I've met multiple times, Veronica, and their three awesome children. So, Roland, just again, thanks so much for, for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Thank you for having me on, John and Sam. Yeah. So the big thing we want to talk about is... Our um, now deceased, may he rest in peace, uh, uh, Holy Father, Pope Benedict XVI, and the legacy that he leaves us, the influence he has for the lives of men, and what we can always keep on learning from him. So I wanted to, I wanted to start and just kind of ask you, what, what helped you fall in love with, with Pope Benedict, with Joseph Ratzinger and his theology? Where did that begin for you, and, uh, and why did you decide to pursue it in such a, a degree of excellence? So... Sure. So when I was an undergraduate at Franciscan University, um, you know, everyone was required to take Introduction to Catholicism. And I, and I don't know if it was just a weed-out text uh, to discourage students from majoring in theology, but everyone had to read uh, Introduction to Christianity, which is, you know, quite a dense, <laughs> you know, a dense uh, introduction. Um, and, and so really it was my first uh, ex exposure, uh, you know, to the thought of, of Ratzinger when I was a junior and senior at St. Thomas High School. I'd you know, read quite a bit of John Paul, even worked through uh, Augustine's Confessions because I had some a great theology teacher. Uh, but it was in college when I first cut my teeth in Benedict. I, but I'd say I really, and so I appreci appreciated uh, Introduction to Christianity, but it wasn't until I read uh, Spirit of the Liturgy that I really fell in, in love with, with, his, with his thought. Um, and now, of course, you know, I've come to appreciate, you know, both of those works and just really all of his, his works in general. I mean, we will, I don't think in our lifetime we'll have encountered the breadth and depth of that kind of intellect um, combined with great sanctity and humility. That's the rare thing, right? That you have someone that has, you know, this, you know, this intellectual giant and then at the same time, you know, a humble uh, saint who, uh, according to one of his students, Father Vincent Toomey, you know, never took himself seriously, which I think is, mm. you know, it, it, it comes out, right? He, he doesn't come off 
you know, at least for me, he's never come off as a stuffy academic, you know, in the, in the ivory tower, you know, uh, writing to other acad writing to and for other academics, although he certainly could do that, uh, but really was trying to speak to the world and, and direct everyone to the knowledge and love of Christ, the logos. Yeah, no, I completely agree. And I appreciate you sharing that because the spirit of liturgy was actually uh, the first of his that I read and actually what led me to uh, fall in love with the Latin mass and to, you know, appreciate reverence in the liturgy and, and grow into that. So, you know, how fun that, that you were able to read that early on. And I agree that it's, it's just so accessible. So. Yeah. Cause growing up in the, the nineties, right. I mean, I was part of that uh, life teen generation is just emerging quite popular. Uh, you know, we're at my, the parish I grew up at, they were doing the thing where you were, you know, surrounding the altar and a lot of praise and worship music. Uh, but the spirit of the liturgy really kind of reoriented, uh, I pun intended, uh, my, my <laughs> on, on, on the liturgy in, in more than one, in more than one sense. I mean, and, and so I began to, you know, look for this kind of reform, the reform or this liturgy celebrated with, you know, a spirit of reverence that I hadn't yet encountered. Hmm. Yeah, I, I love that as well about uh, Pope Benedict. Um, just such a unique figure in that he had the uh, rare ability to bring together just the simple piety of just an everyday Christian, you know, with, again, yes, this towering intellect, but also this deep reverence and, and love for our Lord that shown through everything that he did. Um, you know, some of my favorite pictures of him are him, him in adoration. Like there's just this like look on his face that just so captivating, you know, you just, he's the way he gazes at Christ in the Eucharist. And, um, but, but I remember my first encounter with him was at a Catholic bookstore in Colorado Springs and I wasn't Catholic yet. Um, but I was just curious, you know, and I was exploring in there and there's a little book called the joy of knowing Christ. And it was little excerpts from his various sermons throughout the year. And just a beautiful little book that was like, this man, I, I don't know about this whole Catholic thing, but I know that this man loves Jesus Christ. Like, that was the impression that was left with me. And, I, you know, it, was, it wasn't the kind of book that, you know, blows you away with how intelligent he was, but just his his love for Christ just shone through that book and made a huge impression on me. And so I'm just wondering, like, um, you know, what are like, there's so much, there's so much like that he wrote and just seems like every day I'm discovering a new Ratzinger book about some topic that you never thought of. Um, and but what are some of the themes that captured you as a young man discovering him and like uh, starting to be impressed by how intelligent he was? But like, what are some of the themes that uh, really um, marked his uh, his corpus, um, and the ones that really jumped out at you as you were on your own intellectual journey. Sure. I, I mean, I think the first one you've already, you know, touched upon that, that kind of the Christocentrism, that, that centrality of Jesus Christ in, in Deus Caritas as his first encyclical, right? He says the, um, you know, Christianity, you know, the, the centrality, it's not an idea or an abstraction. It's a person. Uh, it, it's Christ. I think it was World Youth Day in, in Munich. He said, the happiness that you seek has a, a face and a name, a Jesus in, in the Holy Eucharist. Uh, and it's such a simple thought, but yet a very profound one. It was, the in many ways, the shift of, of Vatican II to kind of refocus and reemphasize the centrality of Christ. I mean, as quoted often, you know, by John Paul and Benedict and countless others, got him his best 22, right? Christ fully reveals man to himself, right? If I really want to understand myself as a man or just as a human person in general, I need to first encounter and know and, and love Christ. So I would say that, you know, is, is one of the, the central themes that sticks out for me. Um, you know, a, a second theme would be this, it seems obscure, but it, it comes up in the, um, in the more recent intro or forward uh, in Introduction to Christianity, uh, and elsewhere, right? This, this notion of the primacy of the logos, right? So here, a little, little heavy lifting. The fifty-dollar Greek word logos just means word, reason, or meaning, and it's primacy over 
ethos, right? It means to think ethic or will. Uh, so we have this adage in theology, action follows being. I mean, so, you know, what I do, how I act, ethics, uh, follows from my understanding of who I am, anthropology or or being. And first and foremost, what I mean for Benedict, I mean, he gets this from uh, the German theologian Romano Guardini, is this notion of the primacy of logos. When we don't keep that first and foremost, when we will end up subordinating everything to the will, right? In other words, simply because I can do it, I should do it. And you see, you know, you see that sort of sentiment very dominant in our culture, right? I mean, you, you do you, right? I mean, there is no rational thought that goes into something. In fact, you know, people, you know, have, have surrendered any notion of rational thought. Um, you know, there's my truth, there's your truth, you know, his truth, her truth, etc. Right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, as he would say in his homily as uh, before his election as pope as card is a then cardinal ratzinger there is a dictator of dictatorship of relativism uh, and that ties us to another theme right i mean the whole notion i mean connected the primacy of, of logos is this relationship between faith and reason i mean john, john paul ii described these as two wings that lift us up towards the truth and and you see this again and again in fact one of the I think neglected uh, pieces of Benedict's pontificate are really his speeches. I mean, go to his political speeches when he's in um, Westminster in in England or the Bundestag in in Germany or, of course, the famous Regensburg speech. I mean, again and again, it's about this harmony between between faith and reason. These two things aren't opposed to one another. In fact, when we, you know, don't let uh, faith be guided by reason, it can result in and violence, and, and mm. the same is true even for for reason as well, as we saw in one of the bloodiest of, of centuries. Um, and of course, I mean, the liturgy, uh, you know, is a, is a prominent theme. I mean, you know, from Benedict's rule, uh, he quotes this in his um, book on the theology of the liturgies, the collected works, uh, above all else, right? I mean, it's, it's about the liturgy. The liturgy should have this priority, which should frame how, how, how we live live our lives. Um, another major theme is, you know, the notion, what I call, you know, others call theology of saints, uh, that this is really the ultimate end. It's about sanctity. I mean, it's a neglected uh, theme, right? I mean, he'll talk about the example of St. Teresa of Lisieux or Teresa of Calcutta or Martin de Porres or St. Damon of Molokai, uh, and, and they really represent kind of a, a lived or interpreted theology. Uh, and so, I mean, those are at least some of the themes that, that you know, come to mind from his legacy, and we could talk about uh, any of those, but those are the those are ones that, you know, I can yeah. think of. So. Oh, I really appreciate it, because we could talk about any of those, and part of me wants to have multiple episodes to talk about each of those. Um, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually take it back to your first one about our faith being a relationship, because I really appreciate you mentioning that. The first, I remember um, listening to his, or actually reading the translation of his uh, argument with Jürgen Habermas, uh, this great galactic you know, philosopher and intellect on the dialectics of secularization. And I just remember being so overwhelmed by their conversation and their thought, and then a little frightened. I was like, I'm just, I'm not going to get this Pope. Like, this is not. But then again, reading things like Introduction uh, to Christianity or uh, the Spirit of Liturgy um, or some of his talks, it just kind of really opened up that relationship aspect. And I kind of wanted to bring us back to that because um, I think it is something that has been uh, in, he identified it and actually he helped me identify it, that our faith is a relationship. It's a relationship with God. It's a relationship with Christ. And I feel like we um, have a tendency, especially in our um, American minds or modern minds. And that's kind of what I want to speak to here, living in America, where we have to compartmentalize everything. Everything has to be a black and white. Like, so for instance, if I want to do God's will, then I need to know exactly what God's will is. And if I don't do God's will, I'm going to hell, you know, or something like that. Like we look at these crossroads in life uh, where maybe I have to choose a different job. Right. Or maybe it's a discernment about um, which parish to go to or a discernment of uh, where to live and which house to purchase. Really, any of those things. And we want to bring God into it because of our relationship and our love with him. But very often we have this idea that 
God's will is only down one of those roads, right? Our God, God himself is only present down one of those roads. And if we choose the wrong one, we're leaving God behind. Are we, you know, we're somehow making a moral decision of these, uh, these issues in life. And, and so I'd love for you to talk more about that relational aspect of, uh, that Benedict brought to the forefront because my wife and I very frequently stated that we just want to be coffee, um, um, pals with, uh, with Pope Benedict, if we make it to heaven, um, is, is just to sit and just bask in that. So, yeah, you know, the, it's funny, what comes to mind is there was one of his doctoral students who spent, you know, I think it was like, he had reached 10 years of just writing, researching, reading, refining, and his director, right, the then uh, Father Ratzinger, you know, said, hey, how's it going? And he said, well, I'm, you know, still doing this in terms of research, reading, and, you know, Ratzinger has, is known to being a very good listener. And you know, he listened, and then he just made a simple, the simple response was, you know, well, you have to allow, uh, allow it to be imperfect, right? In other words, like, you're never going to write this, you know, perfect work uh, in, 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 one, in one sitting. But, I mean, to your point, right, I mean, people make, you know, discernment a, a vocation, right? They, they're, you know, or they, or they say they're discerning every little thing right as opposed to just you you make decisions you you execute them uh and then really the discernment sometimes takes place after after the fact mm. um i mean but i mean with respect to relationality i mean yes i mean he's emphasized you know quite a bit that you know god is this uh, relation of of persons uh and you can see it reflected in in how much he valued relationships and and friendships i mean you know continuing to meet with his former students you know, year after year after year. I mean, the continual correspondences he would carry on with both strangers and, and friends, uh, some of which were, you know, like, you know, people he'd known when he was a, a young priest. Um, and so relationships, friendships, uh, people uh, mattered. Uh, and, I mean, and to our American culture, right, especially among men, right, we're not good at, you know, cultivating friendships, uh, you know, especially friendships about the things that matter. Um, you know, I think he's a good good model for us, right? I mean, in terms of the need for us to foster those those friendships, uh, you know, we, we we will only thrive in community, uh, and we need to, and we need friendships that will discuss the you know the permanent things, the things that that matter. I mean, because that's what he did with his his former students who now become his friends, right? I mean, we're going to have a symposium talking about Islam or evolution or the liturgy, right? Whatever. It, it might be. Uh, I mean, not that it's wrong in itself to talk about sports, to, you know, to talk about, you know, the, the things of this world. But we also need to, you know, if we want friendships that matter, we want to, to talk about the, those permanent things. Amen. Yeah, that's, those, those are really important insights. And, um, you know, one of the, one of the uh, relationships, the, not interpersonally, but uh, perhaps in a inter-Christian uh, or ecumenical um, sense that I'd like to get your thoughts on, too. Um, I, before my final stage of my conversion to Catholicism, like one of the moments that made a huge impression on me was Pope Benedict in Westminster Abbey, which you've already alluded to. And I considered myself, you know, an Anglican at that point, like... I thought, well, it's got all the ingredients, you know, of like liturgy and like some historical sense and like, and Anglicans can be very Catholic and, you know, and, and be um, uh, basically 100% Catholic without the Pope, you know, <laughs> like 99% Catholic, you know, without the Pope in some cases, not all of them. But, um, and I was very content in that milieu, you know, and like just... Uh, didn't think I needed anything else, you know, and was con was maybe considering him becoming an Anglican priest. And then Pope Benedict went to England and was sitting next to the Archbishop of Canterbury. And I just distinctly remember thinking, like, which man is the, the Holy Father that I'm looking for? You know, like the spiritual leader, the spiritual father, the the center, the unity, the, the point of unity. And it was just no question in my mind, like, just this intuitive response that Pope Benedict was the one. Like there's just something so powerful about his presence. Even though he's like a very humble man, like not very physically imposing or anything, there's just something about 
his presence there. And so I'd like to hear you talk about a little bit about his um, outreach, perhaps to Anglicans in particular, but also to Christians of all faiths that have created a tremendous amount of converts. Like what was his secret? Like how did he, he brought so many people into the church and like, you know, whole parishes in some cases into the church, like Anglican parishes and things. So like, what was he trying to do there and what was so effective about his approach? You know, as far as effective his approach, he reminds us that dialogue etymologically and in reality is about dialogos. And that is two parties that are supposed to be searching for, for the truth. Um, and, and, and I, you know, and you see in his writings, right, he engages not just, you know, Catholic thinkers, right? He's engaging, you know, uh, Jewish thinkers, Protestant thinkers, all kinds of varying scholars and enters into authentic dialogue with them, articulating, you know, the, the truths that, the, that they're able to come to, maybe pointing out, uh, you know, shortcomings. Um, and then really, I mean, as far as his legacy, I mean, I think Anglicanorum Chedibus uh, is one of the overlooked um, pieces of his legacy, right? This document, this, uh, you know, his generosity in allowing, you know, former Anglicans, Episcopalians, uh, to enter into full communion with the Catholic Church. I mean, there's these entire uh, communities, um, you know, and keep their, their, their Anglican patrimony, uh, which has always been kind of a part of his ecclesiology, recognizing that there is unity within the church, but within that unity, there is room for a certain legitimate uh, diversity. Uh, and so he really, you know, the success is that he reminds us what ec ecumenism is also about, right? It is ordered towards unity, right? I mean, it's not just interminable uh, discussion or dialogue, right? At some point, right, you wanted to to move together, you know, towards, towards the truth, Um and, and and I think we've we've seen that. Uh, I mean, only time will tell. Uh, but I mean, I I think we will. Uh, it's one of the lasting legacies of of Benedict as, as Pope, right? I mean, Anglican and Chedibus and um, you know the this means of this path of commun generous path of communion for those former Anglicans and Episcopalians. Um, and really, I mean, you know, uh, thinkers of all. I mean. I think I mean I've seen a book like Protestant Thinkers and and Joseph Ratzinger, right? Or there was a I think a, a scripture conference at Baylor uh, where they were you know they highlighted different scripture scholars. And one year they highlighted the the thought of uh, of Joseph Ratzinger, Benedict the Sixteenth. I mean I, I think it shows that he you know was was recognized and 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 valued simply because uh, of his approach to to the truth and it was uncompromising in it, but at the same time, charitable in his discussion with others, right? I mean, I think that's the key, right? Uh, you know, I think the Venerable Fulton Sheen says, right, when an argument loses soul, uh, mm -hmm. you, can, you can, sure, say the truth, but do it in such a way that it turns people off, shuts off conversation, turns people away. Uh, so the other, the other element of uh, our ingredient for his success is that, you know, he, he articulated the truth in, in a charitable way. I mean, hence this third encyclical, right, Caritas in, in Veritate, right? There's this need for this relationship between charity and and truth, right? In order to fully appreciate charity, it needs to be guided by truth, lest it fall into sentimentality. At the same time, uh, when we communicate truth, it should be done charitably if we want to, to take root in, in others. Yeah, for sure. And I think one of the things in an issue that you talked about earlier was his... Um, kind of a approach to modern relativism and, and what we all experience today. And I am mindful because you brought it up with introduction to Christianity, where very frequently we try and get in conversations with people in the secular faith. And we are like that clown, as he mentioned at the beginning of, of introduction to uh, Christianity. And that story real quick for our listeners is that the clown is the theologian who is part of a circus and the circus starts going on fire and the manager sends the clown to the neighboring town to get help. And the clown goes in to ask for help and they all think he's hilarious and that, you know, they're all applauding him and thinks he's just, you know, giving on a show, but really he's looking for help. And we at times 
who are trying to bring people to the faith and trying to bring people to our faith, they've kind of already chalked it up. Oh, you're Catholic. That's not for me. And, um, and I'd love for your thoughts on just, uh, what Benedict taught you or what Benedict can teach us in, um, in approaching kind of the, the modern agnostic world, right? Relativistic world, um, universalist world, whatever you call it, uh, to, to, to approach it purposefully and with intent, because we as men, uh, we have to have that, right? We have to give account for our hope and for our reason. And we have to approach these things that I know you've spoken of and, and, and between, you know, monastic theology and, and what is it, the scholastic theology and things like that. But, but nevertheless, not putting your thoughts in your mind. I, I want to hear from you what you think Benedict can teach us to, to kind of approach the modern world and what are some things that us men could be doing to prepare ourselves, um, to, uh, you know, to meet these, um, individuals where they're at. Yeah. So, I mean, introduction to Christianity, I mean, I, what came to mind was the other story in there, right? I mean, the, you know, that atheist that goes to all the Jewish rabbis, um, I, I forget if the story comes from Martin Buber or where it originates from, but you know, he, he's basically, he expounds on, you know, his reasons for not believing God and all the rabbis give all these traditional arguments. None of them are convincing. And finally, you know, he's exhorted or, advice to go seek this other rabbi at the edge of town, the, you know, the wisest and holiest. And he listened carefully, right, to the atheist's arguments and, you know, kind of paced back and forth. And he didn't give an argument. I mean, instead he said, uh, but perhaps it's true or something of that effect, right? Perhaps it's true. I mean, so that's, that's one strategy, right? We just, we have to be willing to, to propose that, that the Christian worldview is, you know, has you know, a seat at the table, just as, as any other worldview does. Um, and then in the book, um, Christianity, the Crisis of Cultures, uh, he draws upon Pascal, mm-hmm. and then he, uh, drawing upon Pascal's wager, uh, you know, he proposes that even non-believers should at least, at the very least, if they can't, you know, uh, accept or articulate there is a God to at least live as if there were a God, right? I mean, and, you know, and, and so that's a, an interesting proposal, right? I mean, to, to those universalists, to those, you know, non-Christians, I mean, to at least live as practical Christians. And of course, for Pascal, right, if you do this long enough, if you live this way, eventually it will, you know, uh, you, you'll begin to believe that way as well. Uh, but that's part of the problem, right? We have Christians who are practical atheists, right? I mean, they might check out the box. They might even go to church on Sunday, but practically how they live their lives, they might as well, you know, they're living as if God did not exist. Uh, whereas you find some atheists who are practical Christians, um, you know, but I think, you know, those, those are the things that, that come to mind, right? I mean, perhaps it's true or proposing to, you know, non-believers, um, you know, and, and for men, that means, you know, at some point in our, our conversation with co-workers, with friends, with family members, at some point we have to be intentional. Uh, we don't necessarily force the conversation, but we, you know, we, we propose. Um, I think it was uh, the Swiss theologian Honoris von Balthasar who sent Ratzinger a postcard uh, with the words that said simply, do not presuppose the faith, but propose it, right? And I think mm-hmm. that's what we need to be more intentional in doing, in, in proposing the faith or proposing its, its possibility. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think one of the, the things I love most about Benedict that often gets forgotten and is, is in his evangelization efforts was the power of beauty to, in some sense, um, uh, Bypass the intellect, not 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 that it's not in, there's not intellectual truth there, but but like the uh, it's like our culture is like given up on the idea of truth at some level, and he's like, and there's there's this importance of this way of beauty or, or via pulchritudinous that he talks about, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on what Benedict articulated there, and like what is the importance for us as men, but also for the culture at large, as we're seeking to evangelize. Sure. I mean, in his interview on the, the Ratzinger report with Victoria Missouri, uh, you know, he has that line where the greatest argument or the greatest apologia for Christianity boils down to two things, the, the saints 
and then the art uh, which which the church has produced. So in other words, I mean goodness, I mean the you know sanctity, holiness, uh, and then to your point, the via pulchritudinis, the way of beauty, right? Beauty, um, and so you know trying. To, I mean, I, I think at the end of the day, right? I mean, different people are going to um, receive the faith in different ways. I mean, for some, it is going to be that intellectual conversion. So truth is what's going to be most important. But probably for most people, you lead with with either goodness or or beauty, all of which is to, I mean, direct us ultimately back to to Christ. Um, I mean, so it, as men, I mean, it does require a certain familiarity with, you know, maybe some basics of, you know, what, what is beauty, understanding some sacred, sacred artwork, sacred music, uh, you know, really being uh, cultured, uh, you know, culture or being cultured. I mean, at some point was seeing some kind of snobby thing or, you know, something for people with, with, with lots of money. But the reality is, mm. that, you know, we have this patrimony of, of beauty, which certainly John, you know, and I'm sure Sandy you can speak to, right, in terms of music that we've, we've neglected. Um, and, and, and if we want to, uh, overcome that, I, I think we could all stand to to be immersed in it, because sometimes that's what draws people in. I mean, if you think about it, I mean, even in, in Western Europe, I mean, people will still go to see these churches. People will still go to these, uh, you know, requiem masses from, from Mozart. I mean, there's still something about these, you know, about about beauty that, that attracts and draws people in, but we have to take the the next step and, and explain to them well, why they're ultimately attracted to this this beauty but we can if, if we ourselves don't don't know it and aren't immersed in it pursuing it yeah no yeah. i completely agree I, I we do call all men to start learning to appreciate beauty both in visual we had uh robert pushouts an artist on our show we've had a couple of musicians on our show and and that's and not just producing the music, but actually understanding the music. And, you know, I, I feel like we couldn't have a conversation without talking a little bit more about the liturgy and your conversations about beauty just really entered into that because Benedict was really big on beauty and in his spirit of liturgy, he brought that out. And I know that you and I have both been able to experience uh, the cathedral there of Our Lady of Walsingham of the Ordinariate and the music that they bring, the stained glass, the, the whole architecture and everything is just so beautiful that it just supports and, and helps the liturgy in ways that, you know, somebody couldn't quite list them all. And so I'd love for you to talk about uh, the liturgy, and I'd love for you to talk a little bit about what Benedict saw as the core um, principles and components of the liturgy that, that, that must uh, be there and must remain, um, because you've been able to experience them all, I know, in Houston, as well as here at Dallas-Fort Worth. We're so incredibly blessed to have multiple you know, TLMs, uh, traditional Latin mass, we've got, um, there's three ordinariate parishes up here in Dallas-Fort Worth. And I know there's uh, at least two down in, um, in Houston and then, uh, some Nova Sordo parishes that are, are doing their best to, uh, practice good liturgy. And so I'd love for you to talk about some of the core components of, of Benedict XVI's theology on the liturgy. Sure. I mean, it, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot we could, that's a whole there is. episode <laughs> that's itself. A book. Right? I mean, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, it, but I mean, uh-huh. you know, so, I mean, where do you even begin? But, you know, the, the liturgy is above all the Opus Dei, right? It's, it's the work of God. It's not our work. I mean, yes, I mean, it, it requires our, you know, or, or rather we're called to actively and actually participate in, in the sacred liturgy. But first and foremost, it, it's God's work. In fact, in the spirit of liturgy, you know, he highlights as kind of the contrast, the the golden calf, right? I mean, there uh, in the Exodus, I mean, the Israelites engage in false worship. They want to construct and make worship into their own image as opposed to following the careful, you know, guidelines and laws that, that God has outlined. Uh, and, the same, and the same problem happens in, in liturgy now, right? When people begin to take the liturgy as something that they can manipulate to their own ends, right? You come up with all kinds of bizarre things, whether it's the priest who's celebrating mass out on the raft in the ocean or, you know, the priest, come, you know, coming down the aisle on his hoverboard, right? I mean, there's countless bad examples that we can, that we can think of. Uh, there, yes. truly, liturgy has ceased to be the opus day, right? Uh, and as, as a, yeah, and, and so uh, that's one theme, right? The, the liturgy is 
is God's act first and foremost. Uh, the other thing is, you know, understanding, uh, using the, the book of Exodus to understand the, the sacred liturgy. Um, I mean, oftentimes we think of the book of Exodus as this movement of, um, from slavery to freedom, which, which it mm -hmm. is, right, in, in terms of the promise. Yeah. But that freedom is for a further end. That further end is, is to worship, to worship God in, our own, our own, um, in the way in which he, God wants us to, to worship him. And so Ratzinger does this beautiful job of outlining this relationship between liturgy, life, and, and ethics, right? Because there on Mount Sinai, we get not just the Ten Commandments, how we're called to live morally, but also how uh, we're called to worship. So these things kind of work, these things work together. Uh, in fact, the very word exodus, you see, the only time I think it's used in the New Testament is relationship to the transfiguration, right? When Christ appears there, uh, you know, with Moses on the one side, Elijah on the other, uh, and he tells Peter, James, and John that he was speaking of his exodus, right? His uh, exodus, and we as Christians are called to an exodus as well, that we can't accomplish apart from living the moral life and then worshiping uh, as we ought. And then what a lot of people focus in on in the spirit of liturgy is the whole notion of ad orientum, right? This, this tradition of worshiping facing towards the East, which has always been our tradition. And he does a very good job of, of outlining like that the, we need to recover this. And if not, if, if it's impractical, right? And so this shows his uh, wisdom as pastor. He says, all right, at the very least, right, you put a crucifix on the altar as kind of a, you know, liturgical East, kind of the, um, you know, a symbolic ori orions, but wherever possible, right? I mean, why not, you know, turn the priest back around? And sometimes people have this misunderstanding that the priest is turning his back on the faithful. It's not that he's turning his back well, the faithful, he is outwardly symbolizing what we all need to be doing in liturgy, and that is orienting ourselves towards towards the Lord. Uh, and on the one hand, right, this is a cosmic and eschatological symbol. We're, we're all standing, ready, waiting in anticipation of the Lord who, who comes again. But also it's a, you know, I mean, the word conversion itself means to turn around. I mean, so it's also a symbol of how we ought to live our lives that is oriented back towards, towards the Lord. Uh, and then... Given all that he says about the liturgy, I mean, beauty matters at the end of the day uh, because beauty helps us to uh, to show and, and to help the faithful to understand what's really un unfolding in terms of, of, of the wedding feast of the Lamb. Unfortunately, the phrase uh, used in Vatican II, noble simplicity, has come to mean that you strip the liturgy and churches right of, 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 of its beauty uh, when the opposite is, is the case. In fact, in, in Sacramentum Caritatis, um, he talks about beauty being the veritatis splendor, right? The splendor of, of truth, right? I mean, if the liturgy really is, you know, the heavenly banquet, then we should do all that we can to help highlight that. That's always been our, uh, you know, our, our tradition. And in a culture that's increasingly illiterate, I mean, why not, I mean, lean into the visual and the, the things that, that can be heard, right? Because that traditionally has, you know, taught people and rooted them in the, in, in the truth. I mean, once again, the notion of a beauty. So, I mean, you know, chant, for example, you know, uh, bringing back chant, which should be normative for our, our worship, uh, you know, bringing back churches that look like churches and not just uh, warehouses, uh, you know. Putting, uh, you know, I know, putting back iconography, beautiful statues, uh, that help draw us back in, in, into the worship, right? I mean, we can learn from our brethren in the East, right? And their beautiful iconostasis, right? I mean, there they have kind of canonized which icons go where and varying symbols and, you know, um, and so forth, right? But we've, we've lost that. I mean, in the, in the West, we kind of have this iconoclasm that has, has come to, to reign um, when, when we need to restore beauty and, and the sacred. Yeah, that's that's amazing. Um, you know, and 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 it's the, obviously change is slow, uh, but I, you know, have seen the fruit of those liturgical efforts, those liturgical restorations. In fact, I, um, at the risk of being a little controversial here, I remember when uh, I was a brand new convert. It was about um, 2011, and w when we came into the church, the translation of the missal 
was frankly abysmal. Like it was like kindergarten language, like just like so atrocious. And then he issued like like six months after we converted, like the new translation of the mass came out and uh, the new English translation. And it was worlds different, like just so much more dignified and everything. And so just little things like that, like commissioning a new English translation or things like that, that restore the dignity of the liturgy just made a huge um, effort, uh, or I mean, a big, a huge impact on the church, I should say. So, um, just kind of last. Yeah, no. In fact, I, were... I remember after. Um, oh, yeah, no, I, I remember after my, um, you know, when the, as the new translation came in, you know, my father passed, and so uh, it was being implemented what in Advent or whatever. It was, you know, so for my father's funeral mass, we asked the, you know, the my pastor if he'd celebrate the funeral mass honorantum. And then it was that coupled with using, you know, the new translation. And then, you know, my parish in St. Teresa's Sugarland, we have beautiful sacred music. And all of those things together, um, you know, it, it had an impact on people. I remember, you know, people, some of them had darkened the church, a Catholic church, church liturgy in years, or some had never experienced a Catholic liturgy, but many of them commented just how how beautiful it was. In fact, one one man said, you know, if the liturgy had always had only stayed this way, I would have never have have left. Uh, wow. You know, and it, this wasn't a, a TLM. This wasn't, you know, uh, this was the, the the new missile just celebrated reverently uh, with an with an updated translation in all of its beauty, using you know the church's patrimony of, of chant and other you know good hymnody, uh, and and that simple thing can make make all the difference. Uh, yeah, exactly. Amen. Yeah. Um, yeah, just kind of last question for me is just about Pope Benedict's legacy um, and, you know, so many contributions in so many different areas of the church. But as you look to the future of the Catholic Church, like, what do you feel like is really going to stick? Like, what is really going to continue to grow and flourish maybe everything i don't know but like just um like what what themes like that we've discussed or maybe other ones that um the pope benedict kind of inaugurated or or really emphasized like um will bear f the most fruit in the future as you see it yeah so i i think that you know we'll continue to see the fruits of you know the anglican uh, of, of anglonor and chedibus I mean, I, you know i hope there'll be more um more of that kind of ecumenical spirit or, you know, real uh, fruitful ecumenism that will, will follow something like Anglonorum Chetibus as a, as a model, right? I mean, maybe there's rooms for other communities. I mean, let's say the Lutherans somehow, right? I mean, there'd have to be some major changes or acceptances in terms of theology, right? Uh, especially thinking in, in the areas of grace and faith and, and works, et cetera. Uh, but, you know, I mean, maybe there are, yeah, I'm hoping those fruits will last. I mean, I think his his wisdom on the liturgy, I think, will continue to abide. I mean, I, I, I know there are people who, you know, will point to things like Samorum Pontificum and, you know, it's been displaced by the present um, modo proprio. Um, but nevertheless, I mean, I think, you know, different modo propria will, will come and go. But, I mean, as far as his wisdom of how to understand the liturgy and to appreciate it. Um, I mean, I, I think the, the spirit of the, the liturgy, when we, when we look back on, on the history of the church will be seen as a, as an, as a, as a key moment, uh, as a key moment in which we, uh, really begin to understand and, and appreciate the liturgy anew in the same way. I mean, in other words, inauguration of what he hoped for a new, a new liturgical movement. Um, uh, the the other fruit, I mean, I I hope it will, will be kind of a renewal of of theology, uh, a renewal of theology in terms of you know theology being uh, built upon that foundation, the relationship between between faith and reason. It's ordered towards you know the call to sanctity, um, you know, and that that need for the the centrality of of Christ. And and I'm I'm hoping more people, just the average everyday person, will will read more of a Ratzinger. Uh, my hope is that they'll translate more of his his homilies, because uh, I think that's where the 
the neglect is. I, I think, um, you, know, I, you know, Cardinal DiNardo here in, in Houston says that uh, that Benedict was the greatest, uh, you know, homeless since, since Augustine, uh, which is a strong statement. Uh, mm. But for, I think people to appreciate that will need to translate more of, of his, his homilies. In fact, in his collected works, the books, the volumes on homilies, I think there's like three giant German tomes. So it's like thousands of, of pages. Um, and, and, and so I, I hope that will come to reign. And, and, and you know, the, the maybe the other legacy is just really how he lived his life, right? That, that approach to truth with, with humility, with firmness, um, you know, and that ability to listen to to others. I mean, they said, for example, when he was the head of the CDF, the Congregation of Doctrine of Faith, I guess now it's the DDF, the Dicastery, uh, he would let everyone speak. He would start with the, the youngest members uh, of the CDF first, those who were are newest to the congregation, and then he'd hear from everybody, and then he would kind of synthesize everything he'd heard and then give his opinion, but he allowed others to to speak first, right? I mean, that's real kind of servant leadership at, at work, at work, right? I mean, that ability to to listen actively and and, and thoughtfully, um, you know, and, and kind of the elephant in, in the room, right? I think people will continue to wrestle and, and struggle with, you know, what they see as his abdication, right? His his resigning in in twenty thirteen, right? I mean, there are. So I mean, I, I know one person, for example, he compares it to being abandoned by his father. Uh, there, there mm. is, for varying reasons, you know, you know, hurt there, um, you know, for, yeah, for a number of reasons that you know we don't have time to go into. But I mean, we could say this, right? At some point, um, you know, Benedict makes the the comment that uh, it's not like a father abandoning his family. At some point, the father recognizes he's reached a certain stage in life where he's not. He doesn't have the the strength and the vitality he he once had, and so he must allow one of his his sons then to to pick up where 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 he left off, and that's where I think the legacy continues, right? For those of us to pick up where he where he left off. So, so I appreciate all that. I think that's uh, it's spot on. So, where would you suggest men get started? reading Benedict or understanding Benedict or listening to him with, uh, I mean, there's just so many books. And as, as you and I both know, some of them are dense and some of them are not. And then there, you were mentioning homilies. Would you suggest that? And if so, where would, where would you go? I'd love to hear your final thoughts just on, on what we men can do to better appreciate and understand Benedict. And then obviously to live not just him, but, but his teachings and what he stood for, uh, to become better men for, for the world today. So I said, I think if you want, you know, just kind of a big picture, I, I think any of the interviews that he has done with, with Peter Seabald would be a good place to start. Um, if you want to dive straight into his thought, I mean, I recommend Jesus of, of Nazareth. Um, I mean, as far as papal writings, um, I mean, my favorite, I mean, I know most people probably say Deus Caritas S, but I, I think Space Alvey, I think his encyclical on, on hope. Uh, if you kind of look at the fractured, hurt, divided culture, we could use some hope. And really it is kind of a response to, you know, the, the modern, the modern world. Um, I mean, I think especially, you know, people have put quite a bit of hope as it were right in, into politics. Um, and I, I think there, he does a very good job of kind of re reorienting us. Right. And in fact, he goes so far as to say, right. I mean, one of the, the chief tasks of Christianity is to sever politics from, from eschatology, right. I mean, politics is about ethics. Um, you know, and then he does, you know, he writes about prayer and suffering and gives, you know, this beautiful account of um, St. Uh, Josephine Bakita and the example of Cardinal Wynne Van Tuan uh, and, um, and others. So I, you know, I'd, I'd start there or there's a num number of his, you know, short works. I mean, Behold the Pierce One or Call to Communion or, or Spirit of the Liturgy. Uh, and then, of course, you can't go wrong with this, with this homily. So, um, yeah, but I, I, I go on, but uh, those are, those would be my thoughts. But the thing would be to intentionally, you know, pick things up. I mean, I know I, I've tried, I mean, to, I mean, since Benedict has passed, to just kind of reread certain things or, um, you know, maybe read some essays that, you know, or homilies I, I haven't read yet, uh, but to kind of, uh, lean into his thought intentionally. Uh, I was actually at 
Eighth Day Books um, several months ago. It's a small, one of these last great bookstores in, in Wichita, Kansas. Uh, and they told me they had sold out of, of Ratzinger books. As soon after he died, just people made wow. a run on on Ratzinger books. Right? And it's a yeah. it's a great little store, right? I mean, you know, put a little plug, eighth 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 day books, right? I mean, you know, before Warren, I mean you you forget what it's like to pay retail, but I mean it is good to support the old the brick and mortar. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> well, they they are out they were at you know, there was a big run on, on Ratzinger books. So I'm I'm hoping more and more people will read and, and come to appreciate him i think it was in the the pillar there was the interviews they did of just people in line to pay the respects to to benedict as laying in state and then there was one priest who said i just came to see father ratzinger um mm. and i think that kind of says it all i, I mean the, you know that he was this really a a humble servant um, in god's vineyard yeah, I just wanted to highlight one of the things that you mentioned about Pope Benedict being a synthesizer and a harmonizer, able to unite these various viewpoints. I feel like he uh, didn't choose his name by accident because St. Benedict, uh, his motto was, was Pax or peace. Um, and I think that's what Pope Benedict represents to me is just a man of peace in a time of disintegration and things falling apart, a lot of tensions within the church. Pope Benedict always seemed to find a way to bring people together to reestablish them uh, in the bark of Peter, you know, and to bring harmony and peace back to the church in just such a beautiful, faithful way. So that's one of the things I love most about him. Uh, but in conclusion, could you just maybe share with us how we can get uh, your books or book or um, anything else that you've written? Sure. Uh, you know, my book, um, A Living Sacrifice, Liturgy and Eschaton, Joseph Ratzinger, is, of course, available via Amazon or via the publisher Emmaus Academic, which is uh, uh, you know, printed by um, St. Paul, uh, Biblical Center, Emmaus Road, right? I mean, all, all these publishing houses, all these these multiple names. Um, uh, and and so, so there you have it. Um, Wonderful. Well, thank you, Roland. We're really blessed to have you join us to talk about such a legacy and such a, uh, an amazing man and that we were all blessed to, to live through his pontificate. And, and so we just really appreciate your time and being with us. No, thank you, gentlemen. I, I, I enjoyed it. Uh, yeah, it, you know, I didn't mean, you know, it's interesting, right? I mean, I, I mean, I, I lived as y'all did right through John Paul's death and, and funeral uh and it was obviously moving and you know for various ways but i mean ah, this this death hit me harder for some you know for whatever for whatever reason you know i mean i you felt the kind of the paternal or you know almost like loss of a grandfather um you know so. yeah agreed well let's all uh keep um Keep the Holy Father in our prayers of Benedict the Sixteenth. Of course, keep Francis in your prayers as well. But <laughs> keep the repose yes. of the soul of, of Benedict in your prayers. So, as we like to end each of our episodes, be a man, be a saint. Thank you.